We want to welcome you to the Bible teaching ministry of Fellowship Bible Church, where our desire is to honor God by faithful obedience to His Word. If you want to understand the Bible better, please continue to listen as Pastor Matt Postiff explains and applies the biblical text one verse at a time. You can reach us with questions or for more teaching audio and print material at our website, fbcaa.org. You can also watch our services live at fbcaa.org slash live. We want to thank you for listening and pray that you will be edified. Join us now as Pastor Postiff opens God's Word. Good morning, everybody. Yes, don't be shy. Come on in. Our scripture reading this morning is in Ezekiel 33. Ezekiel 33. You might be familiar with this passage as it's been commonly used over the years to remind us of the mission's responsibility that we have, although that wasn't exactly the point here. But uh, if you are wanting a way to remember where you can find a passage about the watchman, then remember Ezekiel 3 and 33. 3 and 33. Easy to remember those numbers. Let's look at... uh, Chapter 33 in Ezekiel's prophecy. It says to this uh, this way, Again, the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, speak to the children of your people, and say to them, When I bring the sword upon a land, and the people of the land take a man from their territory and make him their watchman, when he sees the sword coming upon the land, if he blows the trumpet and warns the people, then whoever hears the sound of the trumpet and does not take warning, if the sword comes and takes him away, his blood shall be on his own head. He heard the sound of the trumpet, but did not take warning. His blood shall be upon himself. But he who takes warning will save his life. But if the watchman sees the sword coming and does not blow the trumpet, and the people are not warned, and the sword comes and takes any person from among them, he is taken away in his iniquity, but his blood I will require at the watchman's hand. So you, son of man, I have made you a watchman for the house of Israel. Therefore, you shall hear a word from my mouth and warn them from me. When I say to the wicked, O wicked man, you shall surely die, and you do not speak to warn the wicked from his way, that wicked man shall die in his iniquity, but his blood I, I will require at your hand. Nevertheless, if you warn the wicked to turn from his way, and he does not turn from his way, he shall die in his iniquity, but you have delivered your soul. Therefore, O son of man, say to the house of Israel, Thus you say, if our transgressions and our sins lie upon us and we pine away in them, how can we then live? Say to them, as I live, says the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. Turn, turn from your evil ways, for why should you die, O house of Israel? Therefore you, O son of man, say to the children of your people, The righteousness of the righteous man shall not deliver him in the day of his transgression. As for the wickedness of the wicked, he shall not uh, fall because of it in the day that he turns from his wickedness, nor shall the righteous be able to live because of his righteousness in the day that he sins. When I say to the righteous that he shall surely live, but he trusts in his own righteousness... And commits iniquity, none of his righteous works shall be remembered, but because of the iniquity that he has committed, he shall die. 
Again, when I say to the wicked, you shall surely die, if he turns from his sin and does what is lawful and right, if the wicked restores the pledge, gives back what he has stolen, and walks in the statutes of life without committing iniquity, he shall surely live. He shall not die. None of his sins which he has committed shall be remembered against him. He has done what is lawful and right. He shall surely live. Yet the children of your people say, the way of the Lord is not fair. But it is their way which is not fair. When the righteous turns from his righteousness and commits iniquity, he shall die because of it. I think what you see here is that the fairness doctrine, if you will, is they're thinking, hey, we've been righteous. Yeah, a little bit of sin, that's all right. He's saying, look, you think you can you know, kind of trust in your own righteousness and go live in sin, and then God has to kind of owe you, you know, your life? He's saying, that's, not, that's the thing that's not fair, not how I'm doing it. Verse 19, but when the wicked turns from his wickedness and does what is lawful and right, he shall live because of it. Yet you say, the way of the Lord is not fair. O house of Israel, I will judge every one of you according to his own ways. Verse 21, And it came to pass in the twelfth year of our captivity, in the tenth month, on the fifth day of the month, that one who had escaped from Jerusalem came to me and said, The city has been captured. Now the hand of the Lord had been upon me the evening before the man came who had escaped, and he had opened my mouth, So when he came to me in the morning, my mouth was opened and I was no longer mute. Then the word of the Lord came to me saying, Son of man, they who inhabit those ruins in the land of Israel are saying, Abraham was only one and he inherited the land, but we are many. The land has been given to us as a possession. Therefore say to them, Thus says the Lord God, You eat meat with blood, you lift up your eyes toward your idols and shed blood, Should you then possess the land? You rely on your sword. You commit abominations and you defile one another's wives. Should you then possess the land? Say thus to them, thus says the Lord God, as I live, surely those who are in the ruins shall fall by the sword. And the one who is in the open field, I will give to the beasts to be devoured. And those who are in the strongholds and caves shall die of the pestilence. For I will make the land most desolate. Her arrogant strength shall cease, and the mountains of Israel shall be so desolate that no one will pass through. Then they shall know that I am the Lord, when I have made the land most desolate because of all their abominations which they have committed. As for you, son of man, the children of your people are talking about you beside the walls and in the doors of the houses, and they speak to one another, everyone saying to his brother, please come and hear what the word is that comes from the Lord. So they come to you as people do. They sit before you as my people and they hear your words, but they do not do them. For with their mouth they show much love, but their hearts pursue their own gain. Indeed, you are to them as a very lovely song of one who has a pleasant voice and can play well on an instrument. For they hear your words, but they do not do them. And when this comes to pass, surely it will come, then they will know that a prophet has been among them, the watchman responsible for passing the message of God to them. All right, Carolyn, are you ready? Okay, we're going to invite Carolyn up. At the same time, we'll invite the men to come forward to take up the offering. We'll have a brief prayer. 
and then enjoy some music that's been offered here by Carolyn. Let us pray. Father, thank you for the blessing of being your children and having your word and being uh, admonished by it that there is still yet a watchman responsibility. We each have something of that role as ambassadors for Christ. Certainly pastors and elders and churches do and missionaries and all of us are that as well. Lord, may... uh, We'd be able to say, like the Apostle Paul, that our hands are clean, that we have not the blood of the innocents, as it were, on our hands, the blood of those who could have heard had we told them, but let us do that. Let's turn to Philippians chapter 3 and 4 this morning as we study the scriptures together once again. The title of the message is Steadfast Faith. You'll see why very soon in the beginning of chapter 4, but I wanted to go backwards just a little bit and touch a little bit more on chapter 3, verses 20 and 21. So let's trust the Lord to help us as we do that this morning. We uh, quickly hurried over those two verses last time as uh, they were part of uh, verses 17 to 21 that we treated together, Uh, and that was before uh, Resurrection Sunday, so we're getting back into it here in Philippians. My focus at that time was to share with you the call to holiness that is implicit in being citizens of heaven. We could also talk about the call to witness that is implicit in being citizens or ambassadors of heaven, but here the focus was on the citizenship in heaven and how it kind of directs our attention toward the things of God in our lives. We do not live like the enemies of the cross of Christ, Our end is not like theirs, destruction. Our God is not our belly, that is our sensual or baser desires. We do not take pride in shameful things as they do, and those are all in uh, verses 17 through 20. We must live in a manner worthy of one who bears the name Christian. You don't just have any name. You have the name of Christ attached to you if you've professed him and taken that name to your lips. Our passports are from the heavenly administration of the God of the universe. This is a very big idea. But upon mentioning then the idea of our heavenly citizenship, Paul reminds us that we are waiting for Jesus to come back from there. The disciples have been doing that ever since he left because the angels say, hey, why are you looking up there? The same Jesus that went up is going to come back. And John 14, 3, the Lord told the disciples before that happened, he says, if I go, then I'm going to come and I'm going to receive you to myself. So the promise of the coming of Christ is very integral in the early life of the church, and it still is today because we're waiting for it. His, his patience and long-suffering, remember how we read in 33 of Ezekiel today, he does not take pleasure in the death of the wicked, and he exercises extraordinary patience much longer than you or I would with this sinful world in which we are. And uh, that long-suffering means a long time between the first and the second coming. And uh, we're, we're glad to be able to know about that distinction of the first and second coming and the Bible's revelation about that. But this is one of the Christian hopes that we possess alongside of the resurrection and the redemption of our bodies 
to a sinless state and, and also the hope of restoration of society to an orderly and just state of things. Right now it's not that, uh, certainly not in perfection and not in many, many places in the world. The returning presence of Jesus is really the key forward-looking hope that we have. The facts of his death and resurrection are in our history. They're behind us, and we, our hope is based on that, and they are the foundation of that hope. But from a chronological perspective, things which we look forward to, like the Lord's return, are that hope that we have Paul says something like this, why do you hope for that which you already have, right? If, you, if it's in your possession, then it's not a hope. Once, once, once the Christmas gift is open and you know what it is, it's not a forward-looking thing now, it's in your present possession. Um, and so, you know, it is with the cross. We don't talk about it as a hope per se because it's in our past, it's done, we have it, it's accomplished its work in our lives but it is the foundation of all those future hopes that we look forward to, the redemption of our body and, and the society and all the rest of that. One of the things that will change is our lowly bodies, as I say it here. Even when we are in the peak of our health, strength, fitness, muscle mass, bone density, exercise, uh, our bodies are still lowly, humble, weak diminutive, lacking in capabilities, temporary, limited, finite, subject to disease and physical death at our best. Jesus will eliminate these incapacities when he transforms our bodies to be like his glorious body. And I haven't even touched on most of our health problems here. (laughs) Pause for a second and reflect on this thought, though, that Christianity, Christian theology, is an embodied theology. I'm getting a little abstract on you here, so hang with me, okay? It's an embodied theology. Residence in heaven and the kingdom of heaven is what we call corporeal. That is, it has a body associated with it. It's physical, it's real, it's touchable, it's material. It's it's not ghostly, it's not ethereal, um, Material in and of itself, by the way, is not bad, although that idea has been taught for centuries. Some philosophers have suggested that the physical is is evil and the spirit is good. Our spirits are imprisoned in the bodies, you know, in our human bodies, uh, in our material bodies. That's a very false, very false kind of philosophy. Jesus himself had a body in his humiliation. Adam and Eve had a body before they sinned, perfectly holy. That'd be fine. Yeah, thank you. Somebody was just asking me if I wanted some water. I always take water. Uh, I don't want to be dehydrated, certainly not while preaching. Um, I don't want to be dry while I'm preaching, right? Thank you. Yeah. (laughs) You're the last one that would tell me I was dry. Never. (laughs) Yeah. You've heard, you've heard that kind of teaching before, huh? Well, anyways, uh, Jesus had a body when he came in his humiliation and never sinned in that body, just like Adam and Eve didn't sin in the first few days after the creation, and that was perfectly holy and fine. And Jesus had a body after his resurrection, didn't he? I mean, what was it that was missing from the tomb? 
but his body. Uh, why? Because he was using it. He <laughs> was transporting it about with him. It was obviously new and improved, uh, healed from the wounds that he'd received in his hands, his feet, and his side, on his head, beaten like no one ever could imagine. But he was all healed from that, and his body was glorified. And he still has a body today. Did you know that? still has a body today. He had one at the beginning of his incarnation after his resurrection and and also, thank you very much, today he does in heaven as he's seated at the right hand of the Father. That just blows your mind when you think of it. That one member of the Trinity has a human body. Our bodies were made in the image of that body, by the way, prospectively. Adam was made in the image of God, and that image was going to include the body that Christ was going to take that was prepared for him. And so the, just the passage of time doesn't do anything with that. It doesn't cause us any trouble. We just know that the future pattern of Jesus' body was the pattern that God made Adam and Eve in, and thus we all have that kind of situation. He will have that body forever. Luke twenty four twelve explains that there was no body in the tomb. There was nobody in the tomb. Well, there were angels in the tomb, but there was no body in the tomb because it was resurrected and Jesus was using that body in a new form again after he arose. John 20, 27, Then he said to Thomas, Reach your finger here and look at my hands and reach your hand there and put it into my side. Do not be unbelieving, but believing. Jesus had a body. Revelation 1, 13 to 16, I won't read that whole portion for sake of time, but it gives a very vivid description of Jesus when John turned and saw one like the Son of Man, you know, girded about with a golden band, a a robe and white hair and and eyes like fire and all of the rest of it. Uh, Amazing. He had then still a body in his heavenly state. Luke 24, Jesus said, Behold, my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Handle me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. Now, the bodies that we will have. So, so Christian theology is embodied theology. We will live in bodies similar to the ones we have now, but greatly enhanced in their longevity and capacities. The bodies we have will be glorious and great, not humble and lowly. And we might tend to focus on the new capabilities that we will gain, the new abilities. Suppose You know, the Lord permits us to move about like he did in his post-resurrection appearances. Many people, you know, when we talk about a loved one going to be with the Lord, they've, you know, they've lost all the uh, incapabilities that they had, the disabilities that they had gained throughout their life. Maybe, you know, our dear sister, Mrs. B, with the post-polio and all of that. You know, we think about how she'll be free to move about and enjoy life like she couldn't since she had polio, but I, I think we should also think, and even more so, about the sanctified capabilities that we will have, not just our physical abilities to, you know, to uh, leap and jump and walk and run and all of that sort of thing, but think about the sanctified capabilities that we will possess without sin holding us back. Think about the capability of the human mind, perfectly sanctified, to be able to consider the glories of God, 
the glories of his creation, the wonders, the joy of perfect fellowship. Think of the heart, the mind, the spirit, the soul, the abilities that we will have to pursue perfectly holy, energetic, diligent service to God and service of the great king. And, and finally, our focus should be, of course, on the person with whom we shall be for all of that time. But don't just think about the physical differences. Think about the spiritual, emotional, mental differences that we will have sanctified as we are when sin is gone. I, you know, we as, as, you know, you look at kind of humanity generally and in the best and, and most, you know, the areas where common grace is most uh, expressed, uh, we've accomplished wonderful things scientifically, medically, technologically, uh, raising standard of living, using the resources that God has given to us and all of that, but that's nothing compared to what humanity will be able to do under the rule of Christ directly and uh, when his people are finally sanctified and redeemed. Uh, we haven't seen anything yet. Now, Christ inherently possesses a power which will accomplish this great metamorphosis. Look at 21 it says, speaking of Christ, who will transform our lowly body that it may be conformed to his glorious body. I've already talked around this notion, uh, but he's got this power that he will be able to make this transformation. And what is that power like? Well, the Lord will call and the dead will rise. There's no laborious energy expended by Jesus to do this. John 5.25 says, Most assuredly I say to you, the hour is coming, and now is, when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live. He goes on in that passage in John 5 to talk about he's going to call and people will come out of the graves, and there will be some who will rise to everlasting life, and others, of course, who will rise to everlasting shame and contempt, condemnation before God. But the spoken word of Christ, rise, and all of this will occur when he calls. A similar thing happens today, by the way, when he calls you and you respond in faith. That is a similar power to raise a person dead in transgressions and sins and to give you spiritual life anew. Similarly, he's going to cause the dead physically to rise again, but just think about that work that God has already done. And you can look back in your, prior, your life prior to knowing Christ and, and see that as what it was, a dead life. You were dead to the things of God. You were disconnected from the things of God. It was a sad state of affairs but when Jesus called, theologically what we call the effective call to salvation, you did respond. And he drew you to himself and opened your mind to the gospel and gave you the uh, illumination that you needed to respond to that, and you did. So he's already proven that in your life as a Christian once. He can do it again with your physical body, which is actually the easier of the two things to do with his great power, he will transform that by the power by which he is able to subdue all things 
to himself. The only reason that all things are not openly subdued to him is because of his patience to permit those things not to be subdued. We should like him to come and as we pray in the disciples' prayer that he taught us, that thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And if he wanted that uh, open manifestation of his glory, it will happen. It will happen. But he's very patient to permit people to go their own way in these, in these days. Now, for a while in early Christianity, it was also unknown that another thing would happen in association with this raising of the dead. When the dead are raised, then also Christians who are alive at that time will be transformed in a moment so that their bodies will have the prerequisite nature and capability to be existing in the kingdom of heaven. And God revealed that through Paul in two places, at least two places, maybe also in a third in John's gospel. But in 1 Corinthians 15, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we all, all will be changed in a moment in a twinkling of an eye, the last trump. And then 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, those who are alive will not precede those who have fallen asleep, but the dead in Christ will rise first, and we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds. So that revelation was something that was a revelation to early Christians, and uh, glad that we have that also today. We call that our blessed hope, our blessed hope that there will be a resurrection and some will be able to enjoy just that instantaneous transformation. Like uh, who? Enoch. A little bit like Elijah, although it's not promised that there'll be a fiery chariot to come and fetch us up. It'll just be kind of a, I don't know, a, an elevation up to the clouds, I suppose. But whatever God has planned for that, that's uh, all up to him, and it will be fascinating to see how it all exactly works out. Paul then goes on, and we transfer ourselves to the uh, new next chapter in chapter 4. We're kind of crossing boundaries here, but I'm doing this for a reason because Paul says, therefore... My beloved and longed-for brethren, my joy and crown, so stand fast in the Lord, beloved. And so the, the word therefore is one of these rubber band kind of words. It connects something to something else, and you have to figure out, does it mainly refer to what comes before, or is it forward-looking to what comes after? I think this is mainly backward-looking, and so we want to kind of treat it all together instead of just, you know, kind of ending chapter 3 and then, you know, starting the next week on chapter 4 with no connection to what came before. It seems more strongly connected to chapter 3. In fact, if I were doing the initial chapter and verse numbers here, I probably would have included verse 1 as the last verse of chapter 3 and made chapter 3 have 22 verses, but uh, doesn't matter. We understand that uh, the chapter and verse numbers are not inspired. They're helps to us. Paul's feelings toward the Philippian Christians are strong. You notice how he addresses them? Have you ever addressed anybody this way? My beloved, my longed-for brother or sister, my joy and crown, and then again the word beloved. Paul sees himself as a peer to these ones. They are brothers to him, my brethren. He's a family member, a sibling, close in terms of human relationships, sharing the same beliefs. That's what he means by, means by brother. He talks about beloved. 
Another special inner interrelationship kind of term that expresses affection and care and sympathy and so on for one another. I, I hope that you have a feeling like that for your, well, certainly your family members, but your Christian family members. You, you consider them to be brothers and beloved. And thirdly, he says what? Longed for brethren. I, I kind of put that out of order. He's got the brethren and the beloved, and then they're longed for brethren. They're, he has a great desire to see and be with the believers. They're a comfort to him in, in his own persecution, and their progress and joy in the faith is a, is a comfort to him in his work and, and that his ministry has not been in vain. What a, what a blessing that it is to him. Um, I've had some experiences that help me to understand personally this idea of longed for. Uh, well, we all had something when we were apart for a couple of months back in 2020. To be together again was something that I longed for, and I know many of you did as well, and you couldn't really be kept from it, no matter the slight danger that was posed uh, by being together. And so you, you have that. Or, or when, I, when I traveled to uh, South America and I had for years a longing and desire to go see the work in Antofagasta, I can't explain why. It just was in my heart that way. You know, I saw a lot of other works as well, but just something about a, uh, a, little, a little church springing up in the desert just attracted my idea of going to see them. And finally, I was able to do that, I think, in 2016 is when that was. And that was just such a blessing. I just couldn't, you know, we had our conference and I wasn't feeling well because of the circumstances there, but I still, all of that was put in the back seat and I was just so happy to get to the airport and take that two or two and a half hour flight north with Brother Flink and uh, visit with them, stay in their home and visit with the church just for a couple of days on a weekend and that was a blessing. So I trust that you have some of this in your heart, this longed for beloved brother kind of idea with your church family. And when you don't, may I say as, as your pastor, that troubles me. That, that's a burden. When people don't care for one another, there's something wrong. I mean, you know, person A doesn't care for person B. I almost don't care what person B is about. There's a problem in the person A's heart. I mean, they might have some oddities or some personality, um, what do you say, quirks or something like that. But when A doesn't care for B, there's a problem in A's heart. And oftentimes, A doesn't recognize it. You know what I mean? Oh, man, it's not good. Paul goes on to say, you are my joy and crown. Beyond what we've just talked about, they're a source of happiness and rejoicing, a source of the, the good kind of pride in Paul, a, a feeling of, of success in the work of God. The church is getting along fairly well, and this makes Paul happy to know. The opposite would be like a burden. Instead of a joy or a crown, it would be a burden. You know, this church is a burden. What churches in the New Testament were burdens to the Apostle Paul? Well, Corinth was one, and the other was the, the churches in Galatia departing from the gospel. At least those two, you'd have to say, boy, that, there was a little bit more of a burden than a, and a joy in that sense. The crown lifts the head. 1 Thessalonians 2.19, Paul says to that other Macedonian church, hey, you are my joy and crown. It's just a great joy for him. 
poetic language it is. Emotional language, yes it is, but you know what? Paul's not an engineer. He's not a machine. He has a, he's a man with uh, real spiritual emotions. And this is real. And then he reiterates again at the end, beloved, what he had already said to them. Here's the command he gives them in the midst of that interpersonal relationship. Keep standing fast in the Lord. Stand fast in the Lord. Paul was concerned that the Christian church in Philippi could be deceived by enemies of the cross, could be misled by Judaizers who taught that law-keeping was necessary to be saved. He was concerned that they would be beaten down by persecution. So instead, he commands them to take their stand in the Lord. Now, the word here, stand fast or stand firm, and you see my footnote on that, and you'll notice how I am speaking with a singular word and two words after it, uh, simply means to physically stand in a place. That's the common literal usage of the word. But when we use it as a metaphor, which is very common, we understand this, um, then it means to be stable or to be steadfast. Okay, so just stand there. Okay, you imagine telling a child, just stand there for a minute. Don't move. Okay, well, God is telling us, my child, just stand there. Don't move, spiritually speaking, metaphorically. Be stable. Be steadfast in your walk with the Lord. Sometimes Christians shift or move from a reasonable spot to something obviously less correct. They don't stand there. This can happen over a brief period of time or sometimes over 10 years or more. Those in ministry long enough have seen it multiple times. That's one of the disadvantages of being in a long ministry, that you see that sort of thing after having more experience in the pastorate as I have been able to enjoy now, you see some of these burdensome things. A little movement here, a little wobble there, a child that goes off the rails, an illness, an interpersonal conflict, or a multitude of other things can cause somebody to just veer off the tracks. And suddenly the Bible becomes secondary revelation in their hearts. Experience becomes revelation number one. You know that? Almost always. My experience is, not the Bible says. Not God says, but I say. This is what happens when people move from standing firm and steadfast in the things of God. And experience becomes primary and boom, you're off to somewhere where you should not be. If you stand fast in another gospel, you're a heretic. If you stand fast in yourself, you're stubborn and unteachable. If you stand fast in the hope of societal change through education and politics, you're a fool. If you stand fast in science, you will be filled with partial knowledge and that will leave you without an anchor. If you stand fast in anything but the Lord, you will be devastated. If you stand fast on nothing, you'll be blown about like a wave of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind, double-minded and unstable in all of your ways. There is a holy character trait of just staying the course and standing in the Lord. Notice what it says, stand fast in the Lord. 
in the Lord. Look at uh, verse four of verse one, rather again, where he says, "My joy and my crown, so stand fast in the Lord." I, I haven't done that exhaustive thought about this, but sometimes you hear people say the word "so" today. You know, uh, think of maybe a teenager who says the word "so." The way that it's used, I can't think of a great example right now. You know, it was so something. You know, that tone of voice that comes with that. Um, what does so mean? Um, in John 3.16, it says that God so loved the world. What that means is in this manner, he loved the word, the world. Somebody was saying yesterday, um, you know, of a, of a person who was complaining that they're not loved by anybody or they're, you know, whatever, and, and I said to them, you know what, the, the Bible tells us that God does love. God does love you in this manner. He doesn't just love you to coddle you in your sin and they're there now and make you feel better. He loves you in the specific way that you need loved. And that is in this manner. He gave his son for you. That's the manner in which, the way in which he showed his love and demonstrated it. God demonstrates his love in this, that he gave his son for us. So in this way, when Paul says, so stand fast in the Lord, he's saying, in this way, I want you to stand fast. And you might ask, well, what manner is he speaking of then? He's thinking about what he just wrote in the prior, most of chapter three. He wants you to stand like this. Follow my example. Follow the example of others that you have that are good followers of Christ. Live as citizens of heaven. Don't be a shame-worshiping, worldly enemy of the cross of Christ. Pursue Christ by forgetting what is behind and pressing on toward what is ahead. Seek the power of Christ's resurrection in your life to know the fellowship of his sufferings. And as Paul said in, earlier in chapter 3, I want to know him. That's how you move. That's how you rather stand in your faith in Christ. That's the manner by which we stand. Now, I, I use the word move. You notice I messed up. Actually, the stand metaphor breaks down at this point because the Christian life is dynamic. It's moving. It's growing. It's improving. It's pressing ahead. It's not motionless. It's not stagnant. It's not lazy. This is where the literal meaning of stand cannot be transferred to the metaphorical meaning of it. You're staying steadfast in a realm of faith, and that realm of faith is dynamic. It's not static. It's full of diligent, energetic service for our King. It's life moving for the Lord Jesus Christ. One of the ways in which we do that is explored in verses 2 and 3, and that is that we're to iron out any wrinkles caused by strife or interpersonal conflict in the church. Such wrinkles will bring upheaval in the life of individuals and also in the church body, distracting us from our real work and our real mission. In this way, Paul transitions from the prior segment of the letter into a practical application here of the Christian life to real-life issues experienced in the church. What is, what is that? Well, here it is. 
Two women in the church were experiencing a conflict between themselves and were spared, thankfully, from the details of that conflict. We don't have to know the details of the conflict. In fact, it's none of our business what is that conflict. But the fact that there was a conflict and how to handle it is obviously our business because God's given it to us through Paul. Paul says, I implore Iodia and I implore Syntyche to be of the same mind in the Lord. We don't know exactly, again, what the reason is, but they lost sight of Christian love. They lost sight of the unity of the Spirit. They lost sight of the bond of peace that hold us together in the Lord. The relatively minor thing that was troubling them should have been set aside long ago if they were standing fast in the Lord, but they let it fester. And they were not. This is, this is an example of not standing fast in the Lord. The names are given for the sake of clarity to the recipients, but the names don't matter to us at all. Okay, they could be Jane and Jill, okay? Mary and Martha, another pair of ladies in the Bible that had a little trouble between themselves. They're, these are two ladies, Yodia and Syntyche, who maybe they were part of the Philippian prayer meeting that occurred in Acts 16 when Paul went. Remember, he heard the man from Macedonia calling, come and help us, and he went there, and what did he find? No men. He found some women gathering at the riverside for prayer. Maybe these ladies were part of that group years earlier, Acts 16, 13. Paul, though, whatever the case, he implores them each in turn. You, I implore, and you, I implore. Get together. Get together on this. It's like he turns to the one and turns to the other virtually in, in letter form. Uh, they both needed this exhortation. Whatever bitterness had crept into their hearts, whatever lack of forgiveness, whatever Whatever interpersonal fly was in the ointment had to be fixed, and he wanted them to do that. They also needed the assistance of other mature uh, believers. Look at verse uh, 3. And I urge you also, true companion, help these women who labored with me in the gospel, with Clement also, and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. So Galatians 6.1 gives us an idea here. It says, you who are spiritual, restore one who has fallen into sin, of course, with a spirit of meekness, humility, knowing that you too could be tempted to fall into sin. Uh, Paul appears to write to one individual here. I urge you also, true companion, a genuine yoke fellow, if you will, some suggest this is a play on word, uh, words like Onesimus. Remember how Onesimus was useless, but his name kind of meant useful, and he would be useful to you again? Well, here some have suggested that this word represents a personal name and that Paul is calling out another individual by name, Sezygus. Uh, I've never encountered this name before in the Bible. Uh, but it does, it does, it's kind of a transliteration from the Greek word here. But um, no other uses of this personal name are known in Greek literature. So I'm a little hesitant to go that route as some commentators have. But in any case, the singular words here, companion and you, mean that Paul has somebody specific in mind. I want you to help them. And he must have known this person has the capability 
of helping them. This person is a mature Christian who can help. So the word is probably just a word that means my, my companion, my worker, not Clement, not Yodia, not Syntyche, but somebody else. And they all would have known who it was in the church. Maybe it was the pastor, maybe it was some elder in the church. They, they had a shared context that we don't have, so they would know who that is. But Paul did not want to see the effectiveness of these two ladies be eliminated by a petty disagreement. They were co-workers in the gospel, after all. This big program of God that overarches everything that makes so many other things seem so insignificant. Things that we fight about, things that we get upset about, and all of that. There's Paul, there's Silas, there's Timothy, there's Luke in the early days of the church there, these two ladies, Clement also. Indeed, the rest of the church would be impacted by this interpersonal conflict as a leaven leavens the whole lump. The effectiveness of the church would be reduced because of this ongoing strife that was going on. The names of all of these dear co-workers is found where? Well, in the Bible, but it says also in the book of life, in the book of life. This means that they are saved people. They are chosen by God in Christ before the foundation of the world. That's Ephesians 1.4. They they're chosen that way for belief in the truth, 2 Thessalonians 2.13. And they are predestined to be sanctified and like Jesus Christ, Romans 8.29. So that's what it means to be in the book of life. I have a whole sermon-length article on the book of life on the church website. You can go to that link that's at the bottom of the page and find that if you're interested uh, in that. I can't go over all of that now again. Um, But I want you to notice there's no thought here of loss of salvation or lack of salvation. Uh, How do we know that? Well, go back to verse 2. Paul says, I implore these two women to be of the same mind. The point is not to be saved, but to be of the same mind. Christians do get out of sorts with one another. That's just a fact of existence. It takes humility to come back together. And we all need to learn and relearn that lesson at various points in our lives. If you think you've learned all there is to learn about humility, guess what? You've just exhibited pride and you need to learn some more humility again. And so there are seasons when we have to humble ourselves towards our spouse, our family members, our church members, other Christians, and come down a little bit off of our high horse and uh, be of the same mind in the Lord. So, you know, all these people, it's a strange thing, can all be written in the Lamb's book of life, working towards the the, the gospel, the faith of the gospel, and yet they get these, you know, picky things that happen among them, and it causes them to separate from one another. Strangely, strangely, these things, which are not at all taught in Scripture as worthy of separation, become, in some people's lives, the very things that they separate over when they say they don't even believe in the doctrine of separation, yet they separate from one another. It's a a terrible inconsistency that we have because we can't get over ourselves. Well, these verses do cross the paragraph boundaries, but this preacher nor any other is prohibited from treating two adjacent paragraphs 
in a single message. The, the Bible books are meant to be read sequentially, and that's what we're doing here. Um, you know, and it's, try, it's forcing us to understand, really, the connection between these two segments of Scripture. Sometimes what happens is, you know, you preach on one paragraph and you preach on the other paragraph separately in another message, but you don't stop to think, how are these two connected? All, I mean, not all, but much of the power of Scripture comes in those connections. It's not just, you know, I'm living like this, now you live like this. Or this is going to happen, Jesus is going to come back and transform us and then stop and then go on to another idea. No, it's you live this way because your life has been transformed by Christ and your body will be transformed by Christ and you're citizens of heaven and you're delivered from this false teaching and all. And you're going to, I mean... This is why you live like this. So the connection between the two paragraphs is important. It's our job to figure out that connection and not let them just stand alone and ignore the glue that brings them together. In this circumstance, our transformed lives, both now and in the future, call on us to stand fast in the faith of Christ. One very practical way we do that is to deal with the flies in the ointment that trouble us humble ourselves, admit when we're wrong, admit when we need the change, and do the change, and our need to be unselfish, our need to forgive, our need to reconcile, and the need to admit that we do not know everything. So I implore you, be of the same mind in the Lord, and God will use us greatly as we go on that path towards tr final transformation. Let us pray. Father, thank you for the word, for the promise of new bodies, for the sanctified capabilities that we will have, for the reminder to stand fast, and for the practical outworking of that to work through difficulties that we have with one another instead of just throwing in the towel, saying fooey and running away or whatever. Oh Lord, we're beloved brethren, longed for joys and crowns to one another, and so help us to live in that way with each other. In Jesus' name, amen.